What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? What is woman that you are mindful of her? Who are we, mere mortals, humanity, human beings, that the Lord should care for us? That's the question we're going to be considering over the next few weeks as we um, go through a new sermon series titled Glorious Humanity. Who are we that the Lord of heaven and earth should be mindful of us? But I want to put it to us from the beginning, and this is really the message for this morning, and that is to answer that question, who are we, what is man, what is woman? We actually need to look first to God, not to ourselves. In fact, As the psalm before us this morning, Psalm 8, and I hope you've got that open in front of you, as the psalm teaches us this morning, we need to look not only first to God, but actually last to God, with a view to God, from beginning to end. Psalm 8 begins with these words, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Verse 8, sorry, verse 1 and verse 9. And that pair of bookends tells us that everything in between needs to be considered in light of that statement. In light of the declaration of praise, in light of the Lord, his majesty, his name, and the glory that is set above the heavens. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When our Bibles say, O Lord, and if you look carefully, you'll see the first Lord there should be in capital letters. In your Bibles. That represents God's covenant name, Yahweh, the Lord. The Lord who revealed himself to Abraham and to Moses and to David. The Lord who promised them that he would bless them. That he'd make a great nation of them. He would, they'd be a blessing to the nations. There'd be a, a throne established forever. He's the great I Am. And he is our Lord. O Lord, Yahweh, our Lord. To understand who we are, we need first of all to know who God is. And we need to know that he's blessed us and what he has promised us to be as his people. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That word majesty refers to his royalty, to his kingship. The Lord is king, he's ruler and lord over all. All the earth. How majestic is his name? It's not just the title we call him. Hey, John. Hey, Steve. Hey, Jess. It's not just his name, as in his title. It's his whole character, his nature, his power and position, his glory, everything that God is. You know, when someone says in the name of the law, stop. It's not just the word law. It's not just the name of a policeman. It's everything that law stands for. Stop. And so when it's the name of God, it's everything that God is. This is the God, remember, who revealed himself to Abraham, Moses, David, and all the rest. The Lord, who, when he revealed himself to Moses, remember, up on the mountain, and he put Moses in the cleft in the rock, 
And he declared his glory to him, saying, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity, rebellion and sin, but by no means clearing the guilty. When we say, How majestic is your name? It's all of that contained in the name of God. And so when we say, O Lord, how Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We're considering all of that about God, all of his godness. How majestic is that? His covenant, steadfast love and promise and faithfulness to us. You know, despite our best efforts for centuries, millennia, humanity cannot make a name for ourselves. That will last. We cannot become anything or anyone ourselves outside of or apart from the Lord who reigns. Lord knows we've tried from Babel onwards, really, or even from the garden onwards. But at Babel, they tried to make a name for themselves, didn't they? And yes, we may well have made amazing progress as humanity in many ways. And maybe some not so amazing progress in other ways, yet we still call it progress. But apart from God, we are still like the flowers and the grass of the field that wither and fade. For many in the world, that truth, that whole idea, only makes them want to try harder, to fight against the authority of God, to prove him wrong, to do everything they can to make a name for themselves, to rule their lives and become masters of their own identity. But the story of glory, the glory story told in the scriptures, tell us how those kind of endeavours end. We're not immune for them, are we? Everyone here would have tried to make their own little way of glory, wouldn't we? Would that be fair? The truth of the matter is, as we'll see in a moment and throughout this series here more and more, Being under God's rule and authority, being under his majestic name and the glory that is set in the heavens, submitting to all of that, doesn't actually diminish us or our potential. It doesn't minimise what we might attain or achieve or make us smaller or confirm just how small we are. It actually lifts us up. Lifts us up to a rightful place as the creatures that God has made and given dominion in this earth. But that is the starting point and the end point for this psalm. O Lord, how Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And everything contained between those bookends is to be considered in light of that. And not only everything in the psalm, between the bookends of verse 1 and 9, but if we can consider it this way, everything about life, Everything in the universe actually is contained between those bookends. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This psalm actually gives us a model or a framework to consider everything, absolutely everything, particularly about creation and us, who we are and what our purpose is here on earth between the bookends of, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That is where our lives are lived. 
That is where our security is found. If you want a New Testament version, it might be something of what Paul says in Colossians 3, that we're hid with Christ in God. Which I hope, as I've said already, and we'll see more and more, that doesn't diminish us in any way. It secures us, it keeps us, it embraces and actually elevates us in God's covenant love and faithfulness. What is our only hope and comfort in life and death? Some of our young ones might remember the New City Catechism they've done over the last few years. Our only hope and comfort in life and death is that we are not our own, as much as the world might tell us we are. No, that we're not our own. That's actually a comfort to us. That's our hope. That we're not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Saviour, Jesus Christ. If we're ever to have a full and true anthropology, an understanding of humanity, we need first of all a full and true theology, an understanding of God. Which is what I trust the Lord will teach us in this new series. Glorious humanity. <clears throat> we actually, as elders, we talked about a title for this series. We questioned a few things. Could we call it What is Man? Straight from Scripture, a quote from Psalm 8 here. Well, that's not very politically correct today. It's sad, really, that we can't quote scripture and be politically correct, isn't it? But even glorious humanity, we get a little bit skewed. We are great, aren't we? Glor but no, as I've just said, it's not about glorious humanity. Any glory that we have is only ever first and foremost God's. And any glory he gives to us is actually to and for his glory, begins and ends with God. When I was a young lad, about as big as the little kids here watching Yoshi with his train set, I remember watching Mr. Squiggle. Any Gen Xers or older here that remember Mr. Squiggle? The man from the moon? Yeah, look at that. Everyone knows Mr. Squiggle. Remember his good friend Miss Jane and the grumpy old blackboard? Hurry up. Oh, a bit like you guys when I'm preaching sometimes. <laughs> if you've never had a chance to enjoy Mr. Squiggle, if you're under the age of 30 probably, it was a children's show with a title character, Mr. Squiggle. He was given at times a sheets of card with a few texture marks and strokes on it. And out of these random strokes on a bit of paper, Mr. Squiggle, who was a very pu he was a puppet, a very clever and artistic puppet with a pencil for a nose, um, out of those few dots and squiggles, he would actually make this wonderful picture, or at least a line drawing of something you could recognise. And sometimes as he was drawing and Blackboard would get impatient and say, hurry up, hurry up, uh, because Miss Jane couldn't guess it right. She, he was drawing, she was trying to guess what it was, and he said, no, no, it's not that. And at times he'd sometimes say, it's upside down, Miss Jane, upside down. Remember that? This one little phrase, it sticks in my head. And eventually she'd turn it up and, and finish it off, and voila, there's this glorious piece of artwork. Or at least a few squiggles, like I said. You could at least recognise what it was. Now, I don't know if it's because of our smartphones, which when you flip them upside down, everything sort of goes the right way around for us. But I reckon we've lost the art or the discernment, the ability to work out when things are upside down in our day. In so many ways. I don't think it is just our smartphones. Ever since the fall, ever since sin has come into the world, we have a tendency, we have a, a drive, not just a tendency, but a drive to turn the world on its head and view ourselves as first and foremost, as God, rather than beginning with God, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. 
and seeing that our lives are to be lived for his glory. That's because of sin. The evil one has a field day and tempts us into that more and more. But also with that, as we'll see in coming weeks, God himself has actually handed us over to that way of thinking, a depraved and deluded way of thinking. And so that humanity is messed up. And we've got it all upside down. If Mr Squiggle was around today, he'd be saying, upside down, Miss Jane, upside down. You cannot start with yourselves and work out who you are and what you're meant to be about. You need to start with God. We see it today in many, many ways, and we've seen it through the centuries, actually. It's not just today that these things are happening. But particularly or primarily, we see it in the areas of authority and submission, where we don't understand and we cannot submit to authority. We don't know what that truly is, nor submission. And we see it in who we are in our relationships, our gender and our sexuality. That's just two expressions of this topsy-turvy way that we've tried to turn the world into. Not content with the way that God has ordained us to live, we put him and his word aside and we try to work out our own way. But it's all upside down and back to front. And yet, as Jeremiah puts it rather succinctly in chapter 10, verse 23, he says, The way of man is not in himself. The way of man, the way of woman is not in ourselves. We cannot work ourselves out from the inside out. In fact, as we'll see in a little while, in a couple of weeks, some of those matters I've just listed, so much of our confusion and trouble in those areas of life stem from the fact that we have exchanged the glory of God for the images, creatures and ourselves. Romans 1. And as I said, that has a lot of consequences. Our own sin, the evil one having his day, and the Lord himself handing us over to our own sinful ways of thinking. And conducting ourselves. Whatever stage of life you're in, whether you're a young person or a middle-aged or older person, I reckon all of us in some way or another, in some time or another, and maybe time and time again, we ask the question, who am I? What am I meant to be about in my life at this moment? Especially when we're feeling a bit lost, maybe with work or family and transitions. What's my place in this world? And the world is only too happy to try to give you some answers to that question. But as I said, if Mr. Squigger was around, it would all be upside down. Where do we turn when we ask that question? Who am I? What should I be about? Where do we turn when we try to work out and discern the best way forward in our homes, in our families, our churches, our schools, our culture? Do we look to God and to his word? Do we listen to him and what he's revealed about himself and therefore what he's revealed about us who are made in his image? Or do we look to what the world is telling us? Or do we sort of mix up the two? And I think we need to be acutely aware that as a church and as the church, the voices and the lies of the world have made their way into our way of thinking. It's crept into the church. David Wells, he's an author and professor of systematic theology. 
15 years ago, wrote a book called The Courage to be Protestant. And he wrote in there this, um, this paragraph. There are two families of spirituality in life. Within each are many differences, much as there are within, fallen, uh, within human family members. But what distinguishes these two families most importantly is that one begins from above and moves down, whereas the other begins below and tries to move up or perhaps in. Think about spirituality, trying to work out who you truly are or who God is. One starts from above and moves down. The other begins below and tries to move up. One starts with God and reaches into sinful life, whereas the other starts in the human consciousness and tries to reach above to make connections with the divine. One is Christian and the other is pagan. They don't share anything. One is Christian, the other is pagan. These are the two fundamental spiritualities in the West today. Now, as you hear that, you might think, yeah, I reckon that's pretty right, accurate and reasonable, and I think it is. But the sad reality is that David Wells is writing that book to warn us (laughs) that both of those spiritualities are taking place in the church. It's not the church and the world that he's distinguishing. He's distinguishing believers who look to the Lord and trust him and his grace and his covenant faithfulness and love in everything. And those who actually start from the bottom up and try to work out God from ourselves. What he's noticed is that there's no longer the out there in the secular world. It's not us here in the the church or the world out there. This is all happening in the church, among believers, from pulpits, and in the hearts of so many who would call themselves evangelical. We're no longer singing from the same hymn book as the psalmist of Psalm 8. It's attributed to David. Beginning life and all our contemplations about life with God, with the Lord, our Lord, whose name is majestic in all the earth. Now, I don't intend, Nat and I don't intend this series to be a big whinge or a critique about the erroneous teaching and faith that might be so blatant in the world and that has crept into our church. Although if it's a corrective for us, that's good. If it makes us aware of that, I think that's really helpful because we shouldn't think we're immune from any of that thinking ourselves. It's very subtle and it's pervasive in our society and in our own homes and lives. But primarily, though, what I want us to do is to hear what is true about the Lord and about us. I want us to hear that from God, not from the bottom up, but from the top down, if we can put it that way. But a God who's actually come to us in Christ. And hear from him about who he's made us to be. That he's actually crowned us with glory and honour. And what that means. Glory, which, yes... We have fallen from. We'll hear about that next week. But glory that in Christ he has redeemed us, redeemed us for it and restored us to it. And even with a greater glory to look forward to when Christ appears again. So that's been a bit of a broad sweep of an introduction, both to the psalm and to this series. Let's take a closer look now. I asked you if you had your Bibles to open them up to Psalm 8. 
Let's take a closer look and see what is between these bookends. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Second part of verse 1, you have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants you have established strength or praise, is probably a better word there, because of your foes, to steal the enemy and the avenger. There's a glorious image that, uh, or story that Brian shared with us, wasn't it, with a Bible reading? How the singing of this psalm, children singing this psalm, made people stop in their tracks and listen. What was it that stopped them? The lovely voices? Probably. But should they have stopped to listen to the words? It's the word of God and the majesty of God that stops us in our tracks. Infants, children, little ones, weak and vulnerable, who have the praise of the Lord on their lips, silence and still those who oppose God. Just as they did on Palm Sunday. Remember when Jesus coming down on his donkey and the chief priests and the scribes, they saw the wonderful things that Jesus did and they heard the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. And the chiefs and scribes, they're indignant. Do you hear what they're saying? Do you hear what they're calling you? And Jesus says, absolutely, I hear. Haven't you heard what's been written? Haven't you ever read out of the mouth of infants and babes you've prepared praise? So he doesn't take great strength or might to conquer the enemies of God. As weak and vulnerable as a young child can be, they still have a strength greater than the enemies of God, able to silence and still them simply because the Lord is their God. Simply because his praise is on their lips. simply because they live and trust in his name as they live in and under his steadfast love and covenant protection. Young people today, where are you? There's a few around. Don't ever think you're too small. You trust in God. Confess Jesus as Lord and out of your mouth the Lord establishes strength or praise to steal the enemy and the avenger. That's no small thing, is it? We might feel small, but our God is big. His holiness, his majesty and his glory, his name, when we have that behind us and before us, it sets us right in the place that God has made us to be and in the purpose he's given us in this world. Which is exactly where the psalmist now takes us. From a place that seems minuscule and insignificant in the vast universe, when I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, when I look at all of that, just how big it is and how vast it is. What's man? Who am I? that you're mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him. Probably every one of us here has had a chance to sit down and lie back one night and look up at the stars. If you get out in the outback more where there's less light pollution, you just see more and more of it, don't you? And it just puts you in awe, doesn't it? The vastness of it, the wonder, the distance, the limitless extent of the heavens. 
And in light of all that, we're often humbled by our own smallness, our finiteness in comparison. What's man in a context in contrast to all of that? Back in 2014, Jamie Grant came and spoke to us. He's from Scotland, Old Testament scholar. And he spoke to us on this psalm. And one of the things he said is how this psalm confronts us with our overwhelming insignificance as humanity in this world and in the universe. That's what verse 3 does, isn't it? When I look at everything, the heavens, the sun, the moon, the stars, I'm just so tiny. But out of that insignificance, it actually then teaches us the true significance of who we are because of God, because of who he's made us to be and called us to be. When I consider you, Lord, your majesty and your name and your glory, and when I consider all the works of your hands and how you've set everything in place, what is man? What is woman? Who am I? Who are we that you should be mindful of us? That you should care for us? So small we are. It's here, I think, that Psalmist helps us realize that considering ourselves in the light of God and His glory and His majesty and His name doesn't diminish us at all, but actually elevates us. Because the God, the Lord of the universe, cares for us, He meets with us. If we only ever look to ourselves and from ourselves, for ourselves, for whatever we can achieve or do, trying to lift ourselves up. Give it a go sometime. How far do you get? Trying to lift yourself up by your own bootstraps. Not very far. But when the Lord of heaven and earth actually comes and visits you, that's a whole different story, isn't it? A whole different glory. Consider who God is, where he is. Consider his glory and his majesty. And then consider the fact that he is mindful of you. That he cares for you. That word mindful, we don't pick it up in the English so much, but it's actually the same word as remember in Hebrew. God remembers us. And that word remember is a covenant word in the scriptures. God remembered Noah. And what happened? The flood stopped, the rain stopped. The ark opened. New creation. God remembered his promise to Abraham, hears his people's cry and delivers them from Egypt. When God remembers, God acts. And when he acts in his covenant faithfulness, it's with redemption and restoration in mind. Lord, when I look at your moon and the sun, the moon and stars and all the works of your hands, who am I that you remember me? That you act towards me with covenant love. And faithfulness. There's a thing, well, not a thing, there's a whole movement, whole psychology now about mindfulness, isn't there, in our day? I looked up what mindfulness is. It's good to have a definition before you speak of something. Mindfulness is a simple and practical way to learn to observe our thoughts rather than being trapped by them and worrying about the past or the future. 
Mindfulness is paying attention to what's going on in you and outside of you moment by moment without judgment. Might be good and helpful, good awareness to have. But it has to fall short, doesn't it? Because it's all about me and my thoughts and what's happening around me. And it's forgotten the bookends. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name. Any mindfulness that doesn't include that, that's not aware of that, has to fall short of true mindfulness. I don't want to be too harsh and totally disregard what can be some very helpful things for folk, well-being and mindfulness. But surely the best form of any mindfulness has to be not what we exercise and train in ourselves, but our awareness that God, the Lord of heaven and earth, is mindful of us. Isn't it that that secures us and lifts the burden from our hearts? We don't have to carry it ourselves. If we remove any awareness of God, the best foundation we have to stand on is, well, you, me and ourselves. And I know myself well enough and some of you well enough to know that that's not enough. The way of man is not in himself. John Don, not sure if that's how you pronounce his last name, but he once said, no man is an island. You might have heard the phrase, even if you don't know the name. No man is an island. It's actually a phrase he said in one of his sermons back in the 17th century. He was a poet and preacher. Have a listen to the context. You'll probably know the phrase at the end as well. No man is an island entire of itself. Every person is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod, just a handful of dirt, is washed away by the sea, then Europe is the less. Just as well as if a promontory, that is a whole peninsula, were cut off. As well as any manner of thy friends or of thine own were, any man's death, any person's death, diminishes me, makes me less, because I am involved in mankind. I'm a part of humanity. And therefore, never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Now you probably know the first and the last little phrase, but can you hear what he's saying there? None of us in our island, none of us can work out life, can stand on our own, on our own. (laughs) We're part of the whole. And take just one part out, and everyone is lesser for it. And yet because of the deceit of sin and the discipline of God and his wrath being revealed against our ungodliness, we cannot see that. We don't even want it. Our thinkings become futile. We become fools. And today, perhaps more than any other age, we often say that, don't we? But I don't know if it's actually getting worse. It's just God working us out over the centuries. But we are willingly turning ourselves, turning humanity into more of an archipelago of humanity. That is, lots of little islands, lots of clods of dirt floating in the sea, lost and confused because we're individual and on our own and I've got my rights. Thank you very much. Rather than being the humanity that God has made and crowned with glory and honour from the beginning. Unless we acknowledge him from beginning to end, that's all we are, little bits lost at sea. 
with no beacon, no reference point, and therefore no safe landing at all. Fortunately, that's not the end of the story. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? I've often said that word care is like a pastoral visit. God visits us. The word is actually he meets us. Again, it's a covenant word. God met with Moses, didn't he, at the burning bush and up on the mountain. He met with his people in the wilderness. He was there with them, dwelling with them. It's not just that he cares and says, there you go, have a tissue, there, there, it's all okay. No, he actually comes to us personally. He delights to commune with us. The Lord of heaven and earth humbles himself, is mindful of us, cares for us. Can you see how precious we are to him? Who we are to him? And that's only half the story. We still haven't got to verse (laughs) 5. You've made us a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned us with glory and honour. Your Bibles have probably got heavenly beings or a little lower than the angels there. The word is Elohim, which most likely and more often in the Old Testament actually is translated to God. You've made us a little lower than God. We're actually going to judge the angels one day. Maybe the translators, one one commentator said, maybe the translators didn't want to be too presumptuous and arrogant thinking we're only just a little bit below God. But the rest of it tells us what it means, doesn't it? You've given us dominion over the works of your hands. Everything you've made, you've put under our feet. Sheep and oxen, the beasts of the fields, the birds of heavens. Echoes of Genesis, isn't it? Everything God made, God blessed the man and woman and said, be fruitful, multiply, have dominion, subdue. Everything I've made. When Bron and I were married... My mum made a cake. It was one of those old-fashioned, she's into fruit cakes with all the lovely icing and made all the flowers out of bits of icing. You know, shaped every petal and put them all together. Bev's nodding, she knows what it means. It was a piece of artwork. But I tell you what, the anxiety that came with getting that cake from her kitchen table into the car, into the wedding reception, and then out from the... I tell you, there was more sweat over that than the rest of the wedding. It was precious to her. Should anyone dare drop it? (laughs) But here is God, the Lord, giving us dominion over the works of his hands. What trust, what glory he's given us. Under him, not on our own, but under him. That's how much God thinks of us. You know what he says back in the Tower of Babel? When he says, I've got to scatter everyone because you know what? They're getting themselves together and nothing is going to be impossible for them to do. God knows what we're capable of more than we do. But it won't last unless it's in and under his sovereign care. We've been made and blessed by God. We've been provided for and equipped with everything we need to fulfill our divine purpose, crowned with glory and honour. That's who we are. Now, yes, We've lost that, haven't we? Sin has come and messed it all up and turned it upside down. We'll get to that next week. But we're also going to get to the fact that Christ has come and he's restored things back the right way around. And we have glory now and glory to look forward to in him. 
not because of anything we've done, but because of everything that God has done and everything God is faithful to his covenant care and his remembering, his mindfulness of us. And yes, I hear blackbird, blackboard in the back corner saying, hurry up, hurry up. So let me finish with this. Because the writer of Hebrews quotes this psalm in chapter 2. And when he does, he identifies Jesus as the fulfilment of this psalm. Jesus is the Son of Man who has been made a little lower or for a little while lower than the angels, than God. Jesus is the one who has been crowned with glory and honour and given dominion over everything. And he is. And yet that wasn't who the Hebrew, the, uh, the psalmist had in mind when he first wrote the psalm. He's talking about humanity. But as I said, because of sin, that's all been lost and turned upside down and distorted. But Christ has come and restored that. Do we actually see everything like that? The writer of Hebrews says, no, we don't yet see everything under his feet. We don't see everything in the right order. We're not there yet, are we? But, he says, we see him. We see Jesus Christ crowned with glory and honour. How? Where? Because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Lord willing, we're also going to look at Philippians 2 during this series, where we see Jesus, the Son of God, who didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, but came as a man, made himself nothing, and humbled himself, and became obedient even to death on a cross. The Son of God in glory with the Father, making himself that insignificant little humanity, bringing himself to us, but not insignificant at all, was he? But lowering, lowering, lowering. And therefore, God exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When the psalmist wrote Psalm 8, he wasn't thinking about Jesus. God was in his divine way. He was thinking about humanity, but it's taken Jesus to come and humble himself so that we might be lifted up with him in glory. Do you know that great promise? When we see him, we'll see ourselves. And when he comes in glory, we too will appear with him in glory. Not for our glory, but all of that will be to his glory because we both start and end with the Lord, don't we? The psalmist, I think, really did get it right when he topped and tailed this psalm and therefore our lives. With O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Father, not only do we feel small and insignificant when we look at the heavens and the vastness of the universe and we have telescopes now that go further and further and wider and wider in one sense should make us smaller and smaller, not prouder and prouder. But what lifts us up is not our progress or our technology, but you. You who come to us remembering us in covenant love and faithfulness, lavishing your grace upon us, visiting us in your Son, 
and sending your spirit that he might dwell in us, that you would make among us your people a temple for yourself, a dwelling place. Father, we have got it so wrong in our day, not just out there in the world, but things in our own hearts too that think we are it in a bit, that we look to you to serve us. We employ you to do our bidding. Father, we've got it all upside down. And so, Father, we pray earnestly that you would not only help us see things the right way up, but you would help us to live by faith in things the right way around. Looking to you for all things, for who we are and what we're to be about, and giving glory to you that our whole lives would be to your praise and glory the glory of your grace. And so, Father, would you speak to us and so shape our hearts and minds these coming weeks as we consider these things. Conform us into the image of your Son, Father, who showed us what it is to be humble before you, but in that to be lifted up by you to your praise and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.